Hi and welcome back to Perfect Imbalance, the podcast all about well-being, happiness and achieving greater performance. I'm your host Jeff Way and I'm back with episode 27. Last week's episode with Dr. Steve Marshall provoked me to think about my own purpose and how I approach going into 2019 is already looking very different. This past week has seen me conduct the first interview of Series 3 with Dave Algio, the stressed guru, and this will be out in January. I've also had the pleasure of meeting up with Simon Austin, the training ground guru and founder of Cohesive Coaching Events. Finally, this past week, I attended the second MindChimp event in Manchester and was blown away by a presentation given by Tim Roberts about emotional intelligence and how it saved his life. Tim and I will be talking more in the coming weeks and collaborating on some new stuff in the new year. So watch this space. Now on to this week's guest episode, I talk with Nick Littlehales, the elite sports sleep coach. Nick and I discuss a number of topics during this interview, including work-life balance and the importance of recovery and downtime. Plus, we also talk about chronotypes and the circadian rhythm. And of course, his book, Sleep. The myth of eight hours. Here's Nick. Nick, thank you very, very much indeed for agreeing to come on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to spend uh, a little bit of time with you today and understand a little bit more about your field of expertise. So thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you for having me on, Jeff. You're most welcome. Now, I've shared with you uh, prior to our interview my views on work-life balance, and I very much see what I call perfect imbalance as an alternative. Now, what's your thoughts on work-life balance, Nick? Wow. Um, I think sort of it's just uh, an opinion based on on experience of my life of 58 years on this planet. Um, Most of that was was in a world of non 24 seven, uh, no tech, um, with a considerable amount of recovery opportunities every 24 hours, simply because there was nothing else I could do. Um, so there weren't planned recovery periods. They were just periods when I couldn't do anything else. Um, just like waiting for a, a train or a, a plane or something you just people watched or looked at the view in front of you uh, you certainly couldn't be emailing invoices or social media uh, it's um i think that the same so maybe there was a work-life balance that was in place but it wasn't sort of planned it was a sort of five day a week for some with two days off it was nine to five it was periods around that when you know had loads of opportunity for mental and physical recovery particularly mental um and since we've sort of we've dived into this this new world which everybody's aware of so i won't bore them with the the realities of that we just continue to remove these recovery periods and we've just got into a position where um i think the the work if you want to class it like that, I just think our mental and physical activity in any 24 hours has increased dramatically. And the time that we spent, I don't know what, chilling out, 
or taking some time out, zoning out, whatever it might be, uh, for some has been reduced to to nothing. So it becomes very difficult, particularly with you know the people that I work with, um, is to try and encourage them to take downtime because it almost feels like they're wasting time if they're not doing something. Uh, the fear of missing out, which we all know about, can translate itself in all sorts of different ways. So I think it's just, you know, what is a work-life balance? Um, for some, they're constantly mentally active. Uh, from the minute they wake up in the morning, you know, almost checking notifications before they even got to the toilet. Um, we're very active. Uh, we've got lots of things that we can do every day and continue to do so. And it, it's not going to slow down, you know. It's not that it's a the world of technology is a bad thing for us. Um, we love it, you know. And if we can prove things, if we can make developments and, and give ourselves more tools and access to things, that's absolutely fantastic. But I think the message has to be that, you know, you are Jeff, I am Nick. That is just a title for a brain and a body. It's called a human. It has a complete relationship with the circadian rhythms of the day, which is the sun going around our planet, which will never change. So our relationship with that process, that everyday process, is we continue to get further and further away from it. Uh, every sort of five years, decade, we, we bring things into our lifestyles that continue to take us further and further away. So by result, it becomes more difficult to recover effectively. And I think that's, it's not necessarily a, a work-life balance. It's a sort of more of a balanced approach to every 24 hours or every seven days. Um, take empowering yourself, I think, Jeff, to, to realize that recovery is as powerful. Uh, once you define it for somebody, because people get the wrong perspective of it, that they're just doing nothing. But once they've defined the power of recovery, that means they can actually do more, do it better, do it quicker, do it smarter, whatever words you want to use, then they start to, to realize what work-life balance means. And um, as you pointed out, it's not the same for everybody, um, but the principles of it are. I, I love it, Nick. And, and for those listeners that haven't come across you yet, you, you've, you've talked about a number of things there which are given indications as to what your area of special, specialism is, which, which we'll come on into into a short moment. What I really took from what you shared there is around this mental and physical well-being and also the importance of, of recovery um, and, and allowing ourselves individually, because it will be different, to have some downtime. You, you're right when you talk about technology. If anything, it's only going to get more advanced which which then poses different challenges but at the same time it, it's how can we take a step back and, and give ourselves a little bit of downtime um which which you and i i mean I, i'm not much younger than you would have naturally had perhaps didn't appreciate it but we would naturally have had when we didn't have all this technology around us 24 7. yeah and i think there's a there's a great danger that you know sometimes the older generation can advise the younger generation 
as they go through life because of experiences. But I think this particular shift, probably for, for most people, middle 90s, when we started to acquire phones in a bigger percentage of the population and it's traveled on since there, is actually all generations are finding out about this new world we're in. So there's no real insights from the older generation of how to do these things or how to cope with it or what are the effects. And I, I sort of, you know, I think the only thing that resonates with me is just to remind them that, the, you know, about being a human being. And, um, and that tends to put them in a better place when you start to think about, you know, how you're going to cope with the next few weeks, never mind the next 10 years. No, I, I like that. Now, Nick, moving away from a traditional job title, describe what it is you do and why people want to work with you. Uh, my, my title sort of was given to me um, through a set of circumstances. I was a, um, an international sales and marketing director for a company called Slumberland Bears. We made sleeping products, had licenses all over the world and was one of the biggest groups in Europe producing these products. We did a lot of innovative work as a leading brand on sleep and uh, working with the academics and the clinical side. And I helped set up the UK Sleep Council uh, some years ago, which wasn't in place. So it, there was a lot of, lot of experience wandering around the world looking at sleep. And I... I um, you know, there's a longer story, but basically I sort of fell into into having some dialogue with a local football club called Manchester United just down the road from my office in Oldham, Manchester. That turned into just tapping into my experience of sleep and sleeping products to, to see if there was things that could improve players back in the late 90s at Manchester United, which again, as we've just described, was a you know, we were not on social media. We weren't texting each other. We were writing letters. Um, so it just happened that the media cropped up one morning. You know, Manchester United's got somebody talking to them about sleep. They put coach and sleep together. So I read one morning that I was a sleep coach for Manchester United. Um, so my title is an elite sports uh, sleep coach. Um, you could say sleep recovery coach. Um and ever since that sort of period of time, there's been organisations. Uh, that's why it's elite, because normally they don't have any budgets for sleep. Um, like all of us, <laughs> we're not encouraged to have budgets for sleep, because it's not a medical thing, it's not a performance factor. But there's been a number of key organisations, Premiership Football Clubs, Olympic squads, British Cycling, uh, rowing, all sorts of things along the route where... You know that the my experience and and the techniques that I sort of developed along the 22 years now have was all about not trying to talk about the medical and academic side of, of sleep and the importance of it was just trying to help an individual athlete get from A to B in an ever increasing pressure on their daily schedules, on their personal lives as well as their occupation in sport and. I think it was rather than, you know, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. It was, I was fully aware, like most people in the industry, of things that I think you sort of touched on before. So, well, there's no point telling 
these players originally to to get eight hours a night and I'll see you in the morning um, because that just wasn't practical and wasn't being even achieved or adopted. So I just was able to to identify things where there were these myths and misunderstandings to start a sort of education awareness process all based on complete practical and achievable things that everybody can do every day uh, to protect their level of recovery and you know as we've gone along that route it's developed it's sort of turned itself into a into a technique um, a process of going with somebody and um, you know it's a big subject now for all the potentially wrong reasons because of the side effects of poor recovery in the modern world but um, for a lot of people they they describe it as a sort of paradigm shift in their approach to everyday life because they've been led by not necessarily uh, uh, incorrect information but but myths misunderstandings and so they really have never been introduced that there is another way to do this and it's a natural way to do it and a lot of things they're doing now are not natural and if they just made some little changes bingo you know the lights switched on and they feel absolutely great so you know that's the reason why I get employed um, the other reason is that it's a very intrusive area Jeff um, with that lack of education and everything else, we don't like letting people into our lives in this particular area easily. Um, so there is an enormous amount of trust um, that goes on when I'm allowed to go into these people's lives and impact on their routines and habits. Um, and knowing that uh, we're only going to improve them, we're not going to make them worse. And, and what was it like in the early days when you were working with the likes of Manchester United and, and trying to educate them or raise their awareness of, of sleep and recovery, were you well received or, or were there some... some... Uh, you, 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 you know, back in the late 90s, it's an unrecognisable world to where we are today. Um, and it wasn't so much as, you know, I'm pitching up and presenting the importance of sleep. It was actually just conversations with the physio, with the manager, um, little things that I was aware of that, you know, there's a player who's six foot two with eyes of blue and 200 kilograms or whatever. And do you know what they're sleeping on in their homes? And the physio would, would go, I don't know. So while you're rehabilitating the player from the sport that they do whilst they're around the club, uh, when they jump into their Ferraris and drive home, you know, what are they spending, you know, many hours recovering on? It could be the wrong product. It might not encourage the right sleeping position. And I suppose because I was talking to people who are not in my industry, is that basically I didn't make things up, but I could... I could say things that were far more logical and understandable than where the industry wouldn't necessarily go down that route. And it's just conversation, you know, it sort of was just started to look at 
you know, what are the players sleeping on? We don't know. Well, let's find out. Can we make some changes? Uh, let's look at some of your schedules, you know, and traveling here and training and all sorts of things. And, and then little moments cropped up where the manager at the time, uh, Alex Ferguson, to become Sir Alex, um, decided he wanted to double up pre-season training. So they would train in the morning and afternoon, which was revolutionary. Uh, but what do you do with the players in between? And that started to raise little questions of, well, why don't we encourage them to, you know, and I'll use this word once, Jeff, because of the perception everybody gets, is maybe we'll get them to sleep, nap, for a short period of time in between training sessions. And so we cleaned out, you know, one of the offices and put some lounges in there and talked to the players about, you know, rather than lounging around on the sofas and playing games and whatever, and maybe they should go in there and take a 30-minute zone-out nap. Um, and because the relationship with the players, a lot of them homegrown, uh, you know, like I say, not pestered by social media and all that sort of stuff, um, principally if the manager said, we're doubling up training sessions and we're also going to have a period in between those training sessions where we're going to encourage you to to go in there and take recovery and take some sleep then. They basically did what he said. And over a period of time, you'd get one or two doing it, then you get three or four doing it, then you get five or six doing it. And then suddenly they started to look at, well, we've got data in the afternoon and we've got data in the morning. We've only ever had data in the morning. So now we can look at the data in the afternoon and the data in the morning. And things started to crop up that maybe one player went a little bit quicker between A and B or jumped a little bit higher in the afternoon than they did in the morning. And they go, I wonder why that is. Was it because they were having a nap and going to sleep? And I just would then, well, I've noticed that that person has a chronotype, which is a PM chronotype. You can spot it in their characteristic. So probably what's happening is, is that their morning data would all be skewed by that and because they're more alert and aware in the afternoon, you're getting some results that show they're a little quicker between A and B. And then you sort of go, well, well hang on a minute, chronotypes. So we start talking about that, and then something else develops, and then da da da. And it sort of, it sort of was, there was no real plan. It was just as things started to happen, we started to look at this recovery area in more detail and because it was new and and it started to make some sense that you just continue on with that process so it's um you know it's a little bit different now because it's more structured and and it's more apparent to everybody else but in those days we were just you know dare i use the word making it up but we were but it's worked and and, and clearly you know the, the success in terms of the teams that you've worked with and you know the impact that, that that one area has added to the other areas within that elite sports setup is, is is clear to see now when i read your book nick i i was initially drawn to the chronotypes because i thought well i'm a morning person i've, I've known this for you know for years that, that actually i'm better in the morning i didn't know why i just knew that i i was fresh i, I appeared to have more energy get more done and then once I got to kind of lunchtime and early afternoon I'd start to flag can can you explain a little bit more about chronotypes 
exactly. Um, it was simply one of those things that I was always aware of, um, like everybody. Um, it used to be classified by my parents and grandparents as owls and larks, you know, the morning bird and the nighttime bird. Um, I felt it myself, that like you, you know, I was always switching my alarm off and, and it was always early and I always felt uh, so much uh, better uh, in every way during the first half of the day, not the back end of the day. I also knew people who were the opposite to that. And so we know it's there. Um, as the years have progressed and technology allows us to investigate more things, you know, some would say there's a little genetic twist uh, to the AM and PM chronotype. Um, so it's not something that you develop, it's something in, inherent in your genes, in your DNA. So when you start to think about that, and it's blatantly obvious to most, there's no point trying to research it because it's very apparent. And so why not try and do something with that? And as we were, you know, talking off air before we got onto this recording, you know, there are companies, and I work with a lot of organizations in sport where this has been going on for some time, where once you identify that chronotype mix, that sleep characteristic with any group or any manager or any coaches, or any support staff, you can then clearly see that everything that is being done is pretty much dominated by the morning chronotypes, the AMers. So we start work at nine o'clock. Well, the PMer doesn't like that. We don't work after a certain time when they're going to be at their best, so they don't get the benefits of that. And I think, you know, if you had the opportunity to go about your day uh, relative to your chronotype, then, you know, I'm doing all my business accounts. Everything adds up and makes profit in the morning. I can run faster. I can do intense exercise. I feel far more confident. And so I do things in the afternoon that are not like that, um, that are more creative and less intense. Um, because that's when I'm at my best. But we don't have those opportunities. But I think once you, once you take it on board that it's there and you can't camouflage it and you shouldn't, you shouldn't ignore it either, is that there are little things that you can do every 24 hours to not only maximize that chronotype, but also to minimize the effects of things out of your control on that chronotype twist. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about the AM, AMers and, and, and PMers and there's still this thought within business and I, and I see it a lot where we, we, we want people to work a certain shift pattern uh, and in most cases it, it, it's an 8 or a 9 o'clock start and then we're done by 5 or 6. Um, what fascinates me, it'd be good to get your thoughts on this as well, Nick, is there are, there are more organisations now that are coming forward and not only offering flexible working, but in some cases saying to their employees, well, you work the hours that are best for you. <coughs> now, I know that a lot of that will come down to personal circumstances and, and they might have family, children, etc. But do you, do you think at a point in the future that we, we, we may see 
AMers and PMers being equally as, as impactful and, and being able to maximize their day based on doing hours that are likely to suit them, do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's already happening. It's been happening for a long, long time. The, you know, principally, you know, in, in our world today, you know, companies are, uh, are popping up uh, very quickly. Um, online and service providers, entertainers, whatever it might be. Uh, and so they do have the opportunity to change the way that they work because they're generally working in a 24 seven culture. They are, they have got all the technology is available to their employees wherever they are. So a lot of things, the reasons why we went to work is because that's where we had the tools to work. We didn't have them at home, but that's completely changed. So there is that opportunity to, to, for people to work wherever they are, whether it's home here, a, you know, a drop-in office, which has become very popular um, and dominating the world at the moment, rather than having fixed office spaces. Um, and that means you can then sort of examine um, that, you know, if I'm employed by a company, what are the best times in that 24 hours for me to do certain tasks and to get my productivity up, but also to make me feel better because I'm doing them when I know I can do them, not being forced to do them when I'm not completely comfortable about doing it. And I think once that attitude gets in, you suddenly start to find out that Nick is far more productive every 24 hours or every seven days because you've got this uh, chronotype work balance. Let's put it like that. <laughs> I like and, it. I like it. <laughs> no, and it, and it, it's only because once you start to talk about it and realize that, you know, if I'm, if I'm an employer and I'm going to employ Jeff, then why not, as part of your CV, as part of your interview process, why wouldn't the human resources ask you what chronotype you are? Because if I know that, then if, I'm, if you're applying for a job and I'm trying to employ you to do that job and it just happens to be all of the intense work is done between 6 and 12 at night or it's night shifts or it's a long haul pilot, then I know that I'll be asking Jeff to do something that he's naturally not attuned to. Now, it doesn't mean I can't employ you, but it does mean you're aware of it, your employer's aware of it, and maybe if we want your skill set, then we know that we can try and find a way to get the best out of you because we know that. If we ignore it, Jeff, yeah. I'm not going to get value for money out of you, and you'll probably crash and burn within two years and leave. So what's the point? Let's get it open already. I love that thought, and and how refreshing would would that be? Because it's not, it's not labelling anybody, and it's not it, it's not excluding them because they're a particular chronotype. It's actually just having that awareness that says, ah, right. So we're aware of this. This is how we can support and get the most out of you. Actually, we know that you're going to be really productive in this period here, which is exactly where we need you to be really productive. Uh, you, you, you once you start thinking like that. Um, and then you go right back to uh, when we first enter the world 
and we start those formative years. If our parents are identifying our chronotype early, then they can apply things to help us, you know, not make the kids do their homework both at the same time at night uh, because they've spotted something. Um, and as they go through, maybe they'll make better decisions collectively with parents or, collect, or, or on their own individuals about career moves, about study, about where they'd like to go. So, you know, we all want to be astronauts and sports and all that sort of stuff when we're young and everything else and go out and do things. But we would be aware that, you know, Jeff and Nick as AMers might want to be pilots and we can be pilots, but we'd avoid long haul because being a long haul pilot is going to put us under a lot of pressure, both to our families as well. And we might we might not get the best out of that career choice, but we could be short haul pilots. We could be private pilots. So it, it just, it's not to be restrictive or to stop people doing things. It's just over those formative years of growing up, then possibly, you know, as the conversations are being had, like we just touched on, it just would like to open you up to maybe is there another area within the field that you like that would be better suited to you rather than just you're now a long haul pilot and after two years you're really struggling like mad and you're going to have to give it up and go and do something else maybe in 10 years time or whatever. Uh, and that sort of gives you a, a better, uh, you know, arms you with, with a better decision making process that, um, could be quite significant to a lot of people, not only you, and how you go about your life. And you certainly know that the the marketplace um, that we operate in now is, is continually being uh, developed through technology. And, you know, there'll be less taxi drivers around because we're all sitting in cars with no drivers. There's more opportunities to do these things, but, you know, and companies work 24 seven. Uh, they don't do nine to five anymore. They don't do seven days a week. They're just constantly asking employees to, to work different types of shifts, not just night shifts and day shifts, but periods of time where they start work at 6am in the morning, might start work at 3am in the afternoon. They might start work at six o'clock in the morning. And this applies to surgeons, pilots, you know, Amazon staff, whatever it is, is that sort of process of nine to five, two days off is just completely gone. So it, it becomes far more apparent um, in those early days to make, make good decisions about this. And it's not, you know, you can't start sort of, oh, I'll tell them I'm a PM because I don't want to do the morning, the morning shift. You can't camouflage it. You just cannot camouflage this. You know, it doesn't matter, oh, I'm a pm -er. Within three minutes, I can tell you you're an am -er. And they go, yeah, yeah. You know, because, because it's that sort of genetic twist, you can't camouflage it. So you can be truthful about it. it it's not something you can hide and hide behind. So it's much better if it's in, out in the open, in my opinion. Particularly in sport, it can make the difference between, you know, uh, a thousandth of a second on a track and winning and those those little margins become even more and more important in, in elite sport don't they 
Well, well, you know, there's not many of us who go through life knowing that, you know, 3.30, Thursday the 13th of July, whatever the date and time is, is the Tokyo Olympics 100-metre sprint final. And you're spending four years trying to get to that time and that moment. And there's a lot of things and a lot of challenges along the way to get there. But if you miss that time, it's another four years. So we don't necessarily have those uh, things in, in everyday life, but we kind of do. It's We just don't put them there. Uh, we just crack on and get on with our lives. And then maybe we, we see the outcomes of it later on in all sorts of different ways. But they they know that um, they've got to take advantage of their chronotype. They've got to minimize the outside influence as much as they can. And they're also aware that, Jeff, you're in the 100-meter final, and it's at 3.30 in the afternoon, which is not when you would like to be doing that sprint. So we can't ring them up, can we, Jeff, and say, dear Tokyo, could I bring it through to 7.30 in the morning because I'll smash it? No, you've got to be there. You can also spot the other people on the who are potentially going to be on that start line with you, what their chronotypes are, and take advantage of the fact that you might be in a better time frame than the person standing next to you. So you might have a very, very marginal uh, advantage over the people you are racing with. And, you know, certainly if you, as an athlete, Jeff, decided to take on a personal coach and you identify that they are a PMer, then they're not going to be wanting to do training with you first thing in the morning. And when they do, it's not going to be as productive as it would be in the afternoon when they are better. So it's not just you, it's also the people around you. Um, so if you do want to achieve these high levels in elite sport, then these things can make a hell of a difference. And, and it's, it's not just chronotypes, is it, Nick? Because you, you talk about the circadian rhythm, you, you talk about time slots, if you like, for, for sleep and, and recovery, and, and you kind of demystify this myth around seven or, or eight hours sleep as well. So I'm, I'm keen to understand and to hear a little bit more about that from you as well, if that's okay. That's a big area. Um, principally, you know, over the 22 years, you get faced with challenges and how you do it. And, and that's basically developed itself into seven key sleep recovery indicators, areas, factors, um, that if you, if you touch on those seven areas and make little changes, practical changes in each one, they'll aggregate up to an overall better approach to your mental and physical recovery. One of them is circadian rhythms. The other one is chronotype. The other one, uh, number three, is sleeping in cycles rather than hours. You've then got pre and post. You've got an activity and recovery balance. You've got environments and products, and those are the seven areas. And the bit you're touching on is there is no there is no debate about a healthy human being needs around 30, 33% of every 24 hours in a sleep recovery state, um, which equates to eight hours out of 24. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to achieve those eight hours just nocturnally at night. 
That only started happening when we invented the light bulb back in the 1700s and put it on the streets of Paris. What we did was in, invented light, electric light. We brought that in. We then started to be able to extend our period of being active because we were exposing ourselves to blue light, not only the sun, but now through artificial light. So it meant that we could be more active for a longer period. So all that happened is we stopped sleeping in a multiphasic way or biphasic, triphasic way, which was, which was the way the human being did it up until the light bulb. We never slept monophasically. Is that we stopped using that approach a shorter period at night and little periods maybe midday early evening or even more and we changed that because of the light to just providing all this recovery at night and that's why we started to get into the habit of waking up in the morning cracking on with our day until there's only sort of seven or eight hours left and then we'd force ourselves to go to sleep and try and you know and get up in the morning and do it again and and what what, what are you seeing and within elite sport around how they've viewed this differently or started to view it differently in terms of um, cycles. Mm. What, what, what key things can, can you share well, with us in, in that space? It's just, you know, one of the challenges was, you know, standing up as a, a male in front of males talking about sleep. It's like pulling teeth. It's like, oh, what on earth is this about? You know, it's not a performance criteria. We just get on with it. We've got no fear. What is all this about? It's like this fluffy, cloudy, sheep, Zed's, private sanctuary, boudoir, bedtime, doing nothing, um, non-active. Ugh. What on earth is that about? So I think the first thing that you, you, you get across to somebody is, yes, I'm going to use the word sleep so you know what I'm on about, but that's the last time I'm going to work with it. What we started to do is it was about how do you get that player from A to B and by using something that's uh, used inside of a, a sleep clinic, for example, it's called a polysomniograph. It basically tracks the brainwave patterns while you're in a sleep state. It uh, identifies all the various sleep phases and stages that you go through. A lot of academics would look at that as a 90 minute period and benchmark it against another one. Some say 60, but most like 90 to get a full picture. Uh, five 90-minute cycles equals 7.5 hours. So literally, rather than talking about eight hours a night and hours and sleep, we talked about mental and physical recovery cycles in 90 minutes. And if you have five 90-minute cycles back-to-back, -back, you get 7.5 hours, and that's where the eight comes from. Now we've got a relationship with it. It's simple to understand, and you sometimes like, right, so I could do four 90-minute cycles at night and then maybe do a shorter one midday or early evening because we then chop it down to the next cycle, which is 30 minutes. So it's either 30 minutes or 90 minutes. It's normally 30 minutes during the daylight hours and 90 minutes back-to-back -back at night, but that can even be broadened. And suddenly you're just chatting away with an athlete going, right, We'll go for a five-cycle routine every day. We want 7.5 hours recovery. We'll get four and a half hours nocturnally at night, three cycles. It's a shorter period. 
you're more likely to go into it better. You're likely to run through it without disturbances, tossing and turning, overheating, thoughts coming into your head or having to go to the toilet. So you're likely to smash through those three cycles and at least achieve a higher quality of recovery. And then when we get to midday, we're putting a 30-minute one in to just balance that process. That's another cycle, but it's only 30 minutes, so we just saved ourselves an hour. We then might look at the early evening one to protect the evening so that the AMers like us are not going down. This picks us up naturally and allows us to enjoy the evening or play at 7.45 if it's a football game. And, okay, so three cycles at night, one cycle for... Actually, I'm not sleeping as much, but I'm doing it proactively. I'm protecting myself, so I feel as though... I've recovered better, so I'm getting better out of my sleep recovery. I'm enjoying my evenings. I'm able to protect my chronotype because of AMs. We need to have that early evening one to balance the fact that we're heading towards going to bed at 9.30, which we don't want. And suddenly, you then look at the next seven days, and you go five 90-minute cycles. is 35 cycles in a seven-day period, but we're getting them for here. Two there, one midday, one late mid-afternoon. And we look at it and we sort of go, there's where our recovery opportunities are. And we have achieved our 35 cycles in the week, but it's been a combination of 28 90-minute cycles back-to-back nocturnally with another seven little shorter ones slotted in because of what that week was asking for us. So we get very positive pros five cycle routine we've not mentioned sleep once we're managing it in a particular way we get real power from these little shorter periods and then suddenly the the athlete can actually identify clearly just how many cycles makes him tick or her where you didn't know that before so they can play with just three cycles at night and a little one midday they can then do four cycles at night and a little one early evening they could do five cycles back to back and see if they got any more benefit. In the course of a week, they could drop it down to 30 cycles, not 35, and see what happens. Because it's not about the sort of long term. It's more about now I've got something that actually can really define just how much of this particular recovery uh, area do I need? And, and how much does it affect if I reduce it or increase it? And And that, for a lot of people, is a paradigm shift because at the moment they don't know anything. So you then start to think, well, if you just chop your day up into 90 minutes and you think every 90 minutes you need a little break, one or two minutes, maybe when you get to midday you might need 30 or 20 or 15 minutes as a little zone out nappy type thing, maybe earlier. But if you're thinking all the time what you're getting is you're getting your full sort of eight hours recovery over a 24-hour period but you're getting it in a more structured and planned way uh, in harmony with your chronotype in harmony with your schedules and lifestyle and rather than putting yourself under pressure to just try and sleep at night for what is you know for most people you know an eight-hour working day if you're sleeping for eight hours solid, that's not easy. It's not easy. It's a long, long, long time. And it, it's not surprising that people struggle 
you know, getting to sleep, staying asleep, waking up a lot, feeling quite awake early, you know, halfway through it, uh, worrying about it and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's where the, the cycles just, it makes sense from a clinical side. It puts structure into what you're doing. It allows you to define what you're doing a little bit better and find out what actually makes things work for you and what doesn't. Uh, and then you start to completely shift the way you go about your day. And it, and it makes sense to me um, because you're right. You're, trying to sleep for eight hours it is a huge challenge. And I well, think it is probably all right, you know, when we wander back into the, the mid 90s when I was a international director running around the world without a phone it just seems inconceivable how that even got done um but i did have lots of recovery breaks i didn't plan for them so all we're saying here is is use some sort of structure you know you could pick you know um hours uh, 60 minutes um 90 minutes but the reality is that within that clinical circadian human brain process it's a 90 minute period when we can see the brain going through these various stages so why not and that sort of starts to to put things in place and it, and it just helps to remind you not in the old school way that i was going about it and many were mid 90s is um it just helps the individual in today's world just realize it's not about shutting your tech down it's not about you're doing something bad it's not about your generation is going to you know burn out by the time you get to 20. It, it's about just giving them something that's perfectly natural it's not made up it has some relevance but just redefining it a little bit you get a different type of language and it's really great when you hear people who've been doing this for a while and said you know i i took myself down to four cycles a day and i was fine i started to do midday and early evening short ones and i found that that really helped me with all the other things that was going on in my life and it also helps people shift as we are about to do at the end of this month with something also quite crazy because we invented daylight saving time which we shouldn't have done which we didn't you know it's only the war years that created this so and we still have it in certain countries around the world including the uk but not all the countries so we have this ridiculous thing that we we move ourselves further away from that natural circadian rhythm by messing around with the clocks in october and april march and so us as amers suddenly we've got loads of gorgeous sunlight from four o'clock in the morning and it's still around at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night during the summer because we shift the clocks and we get excess uh, activity light and then we hit the end of october and just switch the damn thing off and wow so this this sort of polyphasic 90 minute cycles approach really allows you to move from one period to the next and cope better with it um, because you're more informed and you've got more experience about the impact of these things are going to have on you and the power of recovery. And, and what I love about it, Nick, is that it, it appears to be quite structured at the start, but actually it's having that flexibility 
on an individual basis to then start to play about with it and, and see what's going to work best for you. And given that the the emphasis is on shorter periods or, or shorter cycles in some cases, or, or certainly moving away from this eight hours in, in one go, yeah. I think that's hugely empowering for people in, in the world that we're in now where it is 24-7 and they want to you know, be able to kind of snatch at things or, or not miss out on things. Yeah. Looking at your recovery, and I love the fact that you always come back to recovery rather than just calling it sleep. Looking at your recovery periods in a way that you would look at your, you know, your outlook calendar or you know your social appointments with with your friends or have you, it, it, it's just in it's just in fitting with what people are doing with other aspects of their life right yeah. now anyway. It's just got to be flexible because you know once you start talking about it and then suddenly three years later, um, that that individual that athlete is being asked to play at twelve thirty, three o'clock, one thirty. 5.45, 7.45, um, they start changing their habits of how many hotels they're using, so they fly out to Moscow and fly back the same night and get, get back to the training ground at 4 in the morning. When you start to see all these changes, and just like you know, new parents, as kids come along, they have a similar sort of type of impact on you, if not greater, is that that's exactly the point. You just need something that's subconsciously in your, in your makeup that allows you to adjust with confidence to deal with these types of changes that come along because we're not in control. And, and that's absolutely imperative when you come up with any recovery process. It's just literally got to be, you know, flexible, adaptable, but within a core structure that you know that over the next seven days, you're going to be put under pressure and you need to increase the shorter little breaks because the pressure on the nocturnal part of it is going to be too intense. But rather than worrying about it and just rolling into it, you start making those changes. And I can hear everybody listening to this going, I haven't got any time to nap, which maybe we can come on to. <laughs> and yeah, well, that's what's running through my mind is because in a lot of people's you know, current makeup or, or current mindset and how they view things, they're, they're in this kind of eight-hour work, eight-hour sleep, rushing around before work, taking kids and this, that, and the other. How, how can they uh, approach nap time and it start to incorporate it into part of their day or, or certainly part of some days? Well, it, it, again, what you do is, you know, nap, um, snoozers for losers, power nappers, uh, you know, granddad in front of the fire at Christmas falling asleep. You know, it's sort of like we don't know. We've not been introduced to this correctly. But when you just look back, pop it in your browser, look at sleep weight cycles for the human being, and you'll come up before the light bulb, da di da di da, that we had four major sleep wake cycles. Since the light bulb, we've only had one monophasic. And it's not natural. Once you start to, okay. Now, if a couple of minutes distraction, like take the, water, take the water bottle off your desk and put it back in the kitchen or the canteen, and just go, it's only a couple of minutes. It's not much. But every 90 minutes, and I just feel it, you know, I'm just going to go and get a glass of water, drink it over there and come back rather than doing it in my desk while I'm still staring at the screen, I'm still working. 
um, whether it's outside here or anything else, you just create these little tiny moments that really don't have an impact. And once you start feeling the benefits of, say, a shorter cycle period at night, and you feel as though you've been wasting quite a lot of time, valuable lifetime, feeling fatigued and tired and worrying and waking up through sleep and all this sort of stuff, once you start to feel those benefits, then those little tiny moments every 90 minutes become far more important to you. And it's only a little short bit. It's not, it's not creating too much of a problem. Then you start to, you just look at everything that's going on around you and realize that we do create schedules for ourselves that is, could be done in a much better way. If only you put the importance on recovery, they suddenly appear all over the place, right? All over the place. And it's like, if you wake up in the morning, you have to take maybe your pet, your dog for a walk. Well, you're outside, you're doing some light exercise. You've got your phone in your pocket, but it's off or on silent. Enjoy the time with your dog. Enjoy viewing, you know, your location. And that is a recovery period, mentally and physically, you know? So keep doing it. Don't just do it because you've got a dog and they need to go for a walk. This is for you as well. If you travel to work in all sorts of different ways, ride a bike, um, well, that's, you know, that would be classed as maybe a recovery period. You certainly can't be on your phone, or maybe you can. Um, you just look at these little things of how people travel around, meetings. Um, you know, people ask you to do stuff, Jeff, and you go, yeah. Uh, so you'd like me to be there for one. I could make 1.30. And normally they go, yeah, that's all right. So they said one. You just go, 1.30 would be better. And they go, fine. And then what you do between 1 and 1.30 is you take a recovery spot because that will prepare you for what you're about to do at 1.30. It'll protect your chronotype. It'll protect everything else. And nobody needs to know. It's just you. And the more you tell others about what you're doing, the more that will impact on you. So I don't tell anybody that I'm going for a nap. I don't even tell people that I do naps. It's just there are certain moments in my everyday schedule where I'm not available. But that's only because, you know, you asked me to come on this podcast at 11. Um, if I said to you 10, 10.30 or 11.30, you'd go fine. That's true. Right? And we all know that, you know, all the AM chronotypes having strategy meetings in the, in the afternoon, which are serious, they're about tactical, about strategies, they're about with the bosses all your colleagues and everything else. You know for a fact that if you'd done those meetings in the morning, it would have been, right, everybody, two plus two equals four. Everybody got it? Let's just do it again. Two plus two equals four. We're all right? Go. See you later. In the afternoon, it starts off with, what we're going to talk about today is two plus two that equals four. Now, we know what the two is about, and if you add that to another two, that adds up to four. Now we're going to do a few exercises, and I'd like you to... Do, have you got that, Jeff? Have you got <laughs> Yeah, 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 I've got that. Well, let's just talk about that example. And you take an hour over it. And uh, so this is what you're sort of highlighting before, is that once this sort of paradigm shift to how you're 
going about your day and suddenly, suddenly, instead of me having a meeting with Jeff or doing a podcast that should have been 40 minutes, it turns into an hour and a half. That's just simply because, you know, we're in that fatigue state and we're not at the right time of day and we just make things longer than they should be. And that's where you empower somebody that if they're going to the the gym straight after work for a, an hour's intensive workout is if they just took 10 minutes, sat, you know, at the gym, in the changing room, in their car, just sound out for 10, 15 minutes, then go in, then do 45 minutes worth of intensive class, that the benefits they will get mentally and physically from that class will be as great, if not greater, than doing it for a full hour without the recovery break to start with. And that's the kind of, rather than we're going to slow you down, make you sleep more, um, and do all of those, no, 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 we're, go we're actually going to open up uh, more consistent, sustainable levels of personal performance, which puts a smile on your face, which not only affects what you eat and what you drink, it also affects what you do and what you can achieve. And that's when the controlled recovery period, the CRP as we call it, we don't call it a nap, we call it a CRP, and we're not trying to go to sleep yet. That's the one thing about napping, which I, in my opinion, is the wrong approach is that you're actually trying to go to sleep. You're not. You're just zoning out. It's about visualization. It's about mindfulness. It's about the right time of day. It's part of your new 90-minute cycle routine. It's for you. It's to get more hours out of the day, more productive hours, do some more social things, not just have it all work-orientated because you free up the space. And that's all that work-life balance is free up the space. Do more, do even more, but don't lose sight of that. And once that becomes part of, you know, and you also understand, as we pointed out before, you know, we're human beings with brains. We've got a circadian rhythm around us, sun up and sundown, light, dark and temperature, which triggers hormones and functions in our brains, which has been happening ever since we've been on this planet. Is um, once you get that into your little system you realize that if your brain wants to shove you into a sleep state it will in the uk we have big signs on our motorways that says tiredness can kill take a break we know that we fall asleep behind the wheels of cars on motorways at 70 mile an hour which is absolutely ridiculous behavior it's just simply because Lorry car, lorry car, sounds, everything's done like that. Yeah, and then suddenly your brain goes, right, right time of day, I'm going to put you into sleep. And you go, no, 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 don't do that, could be fatal. So I think, you know, once you get into the habit of, I'm just taking this, this CRP, whether I go to sleep or not is irrelevant, I'm not trying to do, I'm just giving my brain the opportunity to take some recovery, other things might be able to help with glucose production and processing and things like that. Is That's how important it is. And if my head just hits the desk or if I do nod down, have a little microscope or 10 minutes, 15 minutes, sometimes you might, you can identify that it's better if you went somewhere quieter, sat on a chair, put your headphones on because you know 
that you are likely to go into a sleep state because of the way you feel. So you just you just start to have this nice relationship with what are you doing, when you're doing it, and why, and how you can just balance it quite nice. You know, certainly when the the clocks go forward next year, as I am as Jeff, suddenly. You know, we do not want to be going to sleep at 9.30 because we're up at 6.30 and we're AMers because there's sun's out there. There's people riding bikes, doing stuff, having a great time because it's summer. So the early evening CRP between 4 and 7 um, enables us to do that. If you don't do it, we're crashing and we lose out. And, um, you know, that's how it's sort of, you know, once you start talking to somebody and look at, what they're actually doing, these little CRP moments just literally leap off the page. It, it, it makes sense again, listen to you talk, talk about it in the way that you do, Nick. And again, I love the fact that we, we're not we're not talking about sleep here. And, and certainly when, when we talk about napping, we're not talking about sleep as well. And that that's a shift in, in mindset for people because you know, sleep hasn't got the best press. It's not the coolest thing to be doing. And, and napping, you don't want to be seen as a napper either. But but when you break it down that way, and when you articulate it in the way that you have done, it's it's downtime. It, it's a recovery period for you as an individual. Uh, you know, you can, you know, you you go into you go into an office and you work with a little small SME or something like that, which I do. Um, you know, maybe the CEO or somebody in there loves sport. They've read about me somewhere, and they just think, "Well, my my employees would would like to hear you talk, and maybe they'll get some benefit from it and everything else." Then you go back six months later, and basically they've got an open office with a load of people at their desks in front of computers with headphones. That was how it was before I walked in. Six months later, it's exactly the same, but fifty percent of them are still in exactly the same position in front of their computers with their headphones on, just like everybody else. But they are actually in a zone-out period. They are taking 30 minutes. They haven't moved. They haven't gone away. They haven't gone outside. They haven't gone to a sleep pod. They haven't gone to the, you know, the sleep room the company's created with whales sing. They've literally sat where they are. They've just changed the sounds that are going into their ears. They've changed the visualization on the computer and they put a little alarm on for 30 minutes and they're just taking their CRP and nobody knows they're doing it. And that is where you have a paradigm shift in people's lives. It, that's why, you know, the word nap tends to take people into a place that is just so misunderstood is that once they know that's what it means, they start doing it the following morning. Yeah, again, just, I'm thinking about myself, but I'm also thinking about some of those companies that, that I work with that are, you know, in that space of well-being and mindfulness and, you know, downtime, and, and they're, they're really bought into it. Um, and, and when you start to, you know, speak to them on an individual level, you can see that just by taking control of a period of time within their day they're fresher they're more productive they're able to go again in some cases and 
Yeah, I can I can only see more of it in 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 the future, Nick, as as I'm sure you can as well. Yeah, it's it's you know it's a bit easier in elite sport that you know you don't have to tell them to eat well, you don't have to tell them to exercise, you don't have to tell them to commit to something. Um, so we're working in a slightly different um, perspective, but the reality is it's exactly the same for everybody else, and you know. We've concentrated so much on, uh, you know, trying to do our five a day, eat healthily. We've got big shifts in sort of gluten-free and vegan and lifestyle changes and all sorts of stuff. And there used to be about three people in my town who did a, a marathon. Now they all do it. I exaggerate, but they're doing triathlons. They've got five grand bikes. They go riding for kilometers that weekend, you know. We've sort of intensified um, everything, which is great from a healthy perspective. But but if you haven't got that recovery base, then if I'm not recovering well, then I will pick up the burger and chips rather than go and get some fresh food and prepare it and cook it and eat it. Um, Sometimes I will feel like, nah, don't want to go for that swimming session. Right? What we do is make excuses for these things because it's not sort of like I'm not going to do that because I'm not recovered properly. What things start to creep in into your life and you're trying to do your best and you try to take on interventions and things in isolation, but inevitably um, you know, we tend to fall back into this misconception world, and and the, the big worry, you know, it it it's not something that you know cannot be resolved. It can be resolved very quickly. You know, you've read my book. Encourage other people to do it. Give it to the kids. Give it to parents. Start the education process. Change their perspective, and we're off. Um, but there is a lot of fear factor going around at the moment, and a lot of time I spend is actually is getting people off addictive behaviours, and that can be sleeping tablets, caffeine, snuzz, which is a little Scandinavian nicotine pouch at the top of your lip, um, supplements, uh, insomnia, um, all sorts of things that you can energy drinks um, that we start to to try and use because. Our ability to recover just at night is, is under too much pressure, and uh, I think the the other one for everybody is don't beat yourself up about it. You know, as a coach, if you want to stop some, somebody worrying about uh, what they're doing, like in this case, sleep, if you want to chill them out, you can't tell them to chill out, and you can't tell them to stop worrying. But what you do is take them on a little journey, and suddenly they stop worrying about it. And everything falls into place. It's exciting times in in, in the, the field of, of recovery. Now, now, Nick, I have what I call some guest favourites, some sixty second quick fire questions at the end of each interview. Well, okay. <laughs> we might get we might have time for one or two if that's okay with you. Crack on. Okay, good man. So first up, social media platform of choice if you could only use one. Uh, 
because I know you're out there on social media. What would you choose? Or none? I honestly say that maybe I'd, I'd probably probably say Twitter, but I have to say that uh, over the last few years, um, there's been such a lot for us to think about uh, in this particular area that um, it can be quite essential to to a lot of businesses and everything else. But I think we're all getting far more conscious of um, using these platforms um, to instead of doing other things and you know instagram seems to be popular got you know a lot more people using whatsapp rather than other communication tools because it's a bit more protective and there'll be other things coming along um i know a lot of people who've you know reduced their interaction with things like facebook uh, quite considerably. They don't stop using it, but they certainly uh, only use it in a particular way. Um, so I think, you know, at this moment in time, um, you know, carefully used, Twitter would probably be the one. Okay. Good man. Three guests to have to dinner, past or present? Um... Usain Bolt, Stephen Fry, and Einstein. Okay, interesting mix. <laughs> uh, one, one more question uh, from the guest favourites. A book that you're currently reading. <laughs> wow. Do I have to be honest? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Um. There's two books. One is called Sapiens. There's various. Um, I think been a few published, but um, it's a it's a it's a good old read about human beings. Um, the other one happens to be Matthew Walker's book uh, on sleep. Uh, he's a neuroscientist. Yep. Um, I don't read everything. Um, about sleep, but sometimes, you know, a book comes out and you like to to improve your knowledge and your understanding and things like that. And certainly, um, whilst it is a, a very different um, book uh, to mine, um, it, it is a, a, a good read with some good stuff in it from a very intellectual person who's done a lot of research into this area and. You know, for people who want to get uh, a higher level of knowledge around this area, then that would be another one. I'm currently reading it, um, along with Sapiens. Okay. Good. Now I have three uh, final questions to, to finish before I let you go, Nick. Um, sure. Who would you suggest as a future guest on the Perfect Imbalance podcast? I'll give you one that's... Um, be a little quirky, maybe. It will be Dr. Emilios Lemontatis. Okay. He is a leading child and adult um, 
psychiatry doctor based um, at the Tavistock Centre in London. Um, he's a great character. He's uh, he's got a a lot of wealth of experience in um, the difficulties of life and how that impacts on it. And I think um, you know you could say you know sports science guys, you could say this well-being experts and all this sort of stuff. But I think. Uh, that that probably would be a nice insight from his perspective into the area that you're in. Well, I, I will come back to you and, and, and see if, uh, if, if he fancies doing that. What projects are you currently working on and helping listeners find out more about you? Um, we're currently engaged since the, um, the book sleep came out in October 2016 with Penguin Random House in the UK. It's now been translated into 14 different languages around the world, uh, soon to be Arabic uh, at the end of this year. And so what? while I've been hiding away in elite sports, I'm now exposed to the world. So we're doing a lot of, a lot of uh, workshops and speaking events and consultations with all sorts of organizations from large corporate companies right down to primary schools, universities, uh, surgeons, doctors, pilots, traffic controllers, nurses, Amazon workers, you know, um, we're just uh, being run ragged with all those sort of things. In sports, um, pretty much working with one or two uh, Premier League clubs and championship clubs, which is ongoing, trying to coach. Uh, young players in the academy as as well as first team players, coaches and around it. Um, we are also um, working with the Olympic uh, organizations in preparation for Tokyo 2020, which is going to have quite quite a lot of demands on recovery, that particular uh, Olympic event. So there's a lot of work being done in the background to help get those athletes to that particular event. Um, and we're, I'm also in the throes of writing another book. So <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure when that will hit the deck, but it's um, not going too much away. It's, it's kind of a journey from, uh, well, it's just a journey that I think uh, I'm doing it in collaboration with uh, another writer um, who specializes in uh, infant care sleep and things like that. And uh, I'd be very excited when that book gets around to be finished. I shall keep an eye out of it. Um, Nick, one final takeaway for the listeners. This can be anything. Um... I think the best one, um, read or listen to my book, whatever takes your fancy. Um, you can get it on Audible, so you can just listen to it wherever you are, if you're not a reader. But it's, it, is, it is a really good place to start. I think the, the takeaway for everybody, there is, a, there is a lot of conversations, uh, media awareness around sleep. 
there's lots of information that tells us that in the long term, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and things like this are, are going to become apparent because of our approach to sleep. There are companies all over the world coming out with devices and supplements and tech and this and that and everything else, you know, trying to get the money off us because we're in a poor position as far as recovery is concerned. I would just say to everybody, this is a perfectly natural human process that doesn't need any help. Uh, you do not need to be tracking how many hours you get and how much deep sleep you got and all this sort of stuff. Track other things by all means. But in the sleep area, we, we just need to get some years under our belts to, to find out a lot more about it as individuals and everybody else. So just realize it's a perfectly natural human process. And if you just redefine your approach to it, then there is no need uh, for all these outside interventions that, you know, whether it's a big fat mattress or a new pillow or a supplement or a, an app or a device or whatever it might be, or, you know, binaural beats and all these sort of things. Yeah, they can be useful once you've defined what you're doing, but just get back to some basics, get your awareness up. And some of the things we've been discussing today, just get on with them and you'll be, I think, happily amazed at uh, where you might be in a very short period of time. Well, wonderful uh, takeaway for, for the listeners to just get out there and, and, and do something differently with it and not be distracted by some of the noise and, and some of the tech that, that people want to share with us. Nick, well, thank you. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you something to maybe support that, right? Um, we have no idea how much deep sleep, non-REM sleep, REM sleep, light sleep stages, how much sleep Usain Bolt had throughout his life being the fastest person on the planet. Now, you finding that information out, what are you going to do with it? Where's the gauge? Where's the criteria? He may never have enjoyed deep sleep at all. We don't know. So, if you don't know these things, because we've not been measuring them before, it doesn't mean to say we can't measure them in the future, but you've got to get to a point to find out, you know, over quite a long period of time of, of data collection and information before you can start making these informative decisions. We're miles away from that at the moment. And I think that that's so important. And, and you know, right at the very start of the interview, you, you talked about the fact that you know sleep is, is still relatively new uh, in terms of research and having information there that that's able to influence decisions and I love at the very end of the interview you've talked about it being a process so have a go at some of the things that you've suggested find out for yourself in terms of what works best for you and your chronotype and then notice the result and I think I think that cuts through a lot of the noise that we can sometimes hear, Nick. Yeah, you know, it's, um, we all know that we're going to have dinner parties and social events where, you know, we might drink too many glasses of wine. We might eat types of foods that this, uh, there'd be moments where we're under extreme pressure. Um, and when we know those things are coming along, then actually trying to sleep is just nonsense because you're not in a position with adrenaline and cortisol and anxiety and worry. 
you know, trying to sleep under those intense moments, you should do other things um, because it can be counterproductive. And, um, you know, if anybody's listening to this who is a single-handed round-the-world sailor, uh, the race has just recently been on, still going on, actually, um, and you spend three months at sea on a boat racing on your own around the world, um, you're lucky to get 26 minutes every six or seven hours for three months. And that's called an Uberman sleep-wake cycle. So no blocks, no nothing, just short periods every so often. And so we can be extremely resourceful and, uh, and just realize that uh, there's very few people on this planet who are sleeping eight hours a night, 365 days of the year. In fact, I doubt there's even one. Brilliant. Nick, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to come on the show and, and taking some time out to, to talk to us about recovery, to talk to us about, about sleep. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, to spend some time with you. So thank you very much indeed. Not a problem, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. A huge thank you to Nick for taking the time out to provide such insight into the world of sleep and recovery. Now, you can find out more about Nick and what he's up to by checking out his website and, of course, his social media channels. Definitely take the free test on his website, the R90 Sleep Profiler, the first step in redefining your current sleep recovery approach. Full details, as always, are in the show notes. Now, if you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and leave the show rating on iTunes or the platform that you use for listening to podcasts. If you could write a short review, that would be fantastic. And of course, share it with your friends, family and colleagues. A big thank you to all of you for helping the podcast to reach more people each week. And as a result, allowing others to consider alternatives to striving for a work-life balance. On next week's show, I have the pleasure of interviewing Angela Cox, mindset mentor, motivational speaker and number one best-selling author. Until next time, thank you for listening to Perfect Imbalance. Remember this, when you have a balance, enjoy it. When you've got an imbalance, embrace it. For in those moments, you're striving towards achieving your next success, increasing your happiness, or looking for greater fulfillment. Bye for now.